Thanks for joining us for another message from Southland Church. If you'd like any info on our church, check out our website at mysouthland.com. It's the end of one and the beginning of a new year that I'd like to focus on in our time together. And I'd like to make a, a little bit interactive here. I guess it's a Pearson trait now that I've seen Zach do it as well. And it's, I guess it's a Pearson poll. And I'd like to just do a quick show of hands here as it relates to New Year's resolutions. First, how many of you have already made or have thought about what you're going to make as a New Year's resolution for this coming year? Just show a raise of hands. Oh, that's, that's good. How many of you made a New Year's resolution this time last year for 2019? Okay, you know what the next question is going to be, right? How many of you kept that resolution? Yeah, see what? Yeah, one. All right. Uh, you know, that's pretty much how it goes. Okay, now, how many of you have resolved never to make a New Year's resolution? Yeah, okay. That's, there's a ton of you there. All right. How many of you have made a resolution but resolved never to tell anyone about it? Yeah, see, if you put your hand up, you kind of spoiled it for yourself there, I think. Uh, if you are one of those who resolve never to make a New Year's resolution, kind of like me, you're not alone. A recent survey indicated that fully half of us refuse to make them. And of the half that do make them, 22% say they have not been able to keep the resolution even one week. 80% are broken before the first month is up. I saw a recent article uh, that listed the five most popular resolutions made every year, and you can probably name them yourself. The fifth was to take up a new hobby. The fourth was to make more money. The third most popular resolution was to improve relationships, specifically spending more time with your family. The second was to stop smoking, and the most popular New Year's resolution was? Lose weight, exactly. Everybody guesses that. A woman walked into her bathroom one day at her home, and as she did, she saw her husband weighing himself on the bathroom scales, sucking in his stomach as he did. The woman thought to herself, this is silly. He thinks that he will weigh less by sucking in his stomach. So rather sarcastically, she said to her husband, that's not going to help. And her husband said, sure it will. It's the only way I can see the numbers. There's a, an author named Ken Davis who, who uh, decided he himself had a better way of figuring out whether he was doing things in excess or not, and he had a way of measuring his gain or loss from year to year, and his, his method was he would jump up and down and then count the number of seconds before everything stopped jiggling. <laughs> Me, I found a better way this year, five days before Christmas, I had my four wisdom teeth pulled, and... Uh, so now I've been able to avoid most food <laughs> through the entire Christmas season. Yeah, what fun. But often at this time of year, after the in overindulgence of the holidays, we make resolutions to change our habits, perhaps even our way of life. A new year gives us an opportunity to start fresh and better ourselves. We resolve to do things differently, to lose weight, to exercise more, to dispense with old habits and begin, hopefully, some new good ones. We resolve to quit eating so much fast food or 
Failing that, we resolve to at least clean the remains of that out of our vans more often, right? <laughs> and then there's the resolution that covers pretty much everything. I resolve to be a better person. Beautifully evasive, absolutely non-committal, not to do anything specific, not to quit doing anything specific, but just to be a better person. In other words, to be as wonderful a person as my dog thinks I am, right? <laughs> innumerable resolutions made by innumerable people, all made in good faith with every good intention, most of them broken by the middle of January. Making resolutions is not a new thing by any stretch. Many biblical characters made resolutions. Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself. He would not eat pork or drink wine because they were forbidden by the Lord. He defied the king's orders to do exactly that, but he didn't lose out. He earned the admiration and respect of his captors because he didn't compromise his convictions. Jacob resolved to bring his tithe to the Lord. At Bethel, he had a dream, angels going up and down a ladder. When he awoke, he looked up to God and said, if you go with me, I will live for you and surely give you one-tenth of all that I earn. He had nothing to call his own when he made that resolution, and like a lot of our resolutions, he didn't always keep it faithfully, but when he did, God heaped rich blessings upon him. David made two resolutions, to read the scriptures and adopt them as a the standard of his life, a great resolution, one for us all, and to be a man of prayer. Because he turned his ear to me, he wrote, I will call on him as long as I live. So why is it that we have such a hard time keeping these resolutions. When people make New Year's resolutions, it's usually because they've identified something, you know, there's some motivation in their lives that they would like to improve something. These rarely work because either the resolve or the will isn't there, or it's simply just too many to keep. But what? What if there was only one thing in our lives that we were supposed to do really well? What if life is really all about one thing? If it is, I think it would be in our best interest to find out what exactly that one thing is and then do it well. It's much easier for us, however, to go the other way and list the things that we don't do well. Perhaps you have, instead of making resolutions, have made resignations. Perhaps you have an I am not list. I am not exercising enough at all. I am not consistently reading my Bible. I am not meeting with my friends. I am not dating my spouse. I am not engaged with my family or contributing around the house. I am not stewarding our resources well. I'm not reading broadly enough. I'm not finishing the projects that I've started. I'm not encouraging those around me. I'm not volunteering or helping others. There are multiple fronts where I'm supposed to live excellently. I'm supposed to be a great husband a good father, a model worker, an honoring son, a good brother, a great neighbor, a faithful friend, a growing learner. I'm supposed to like tofu and all manner of sprouts. I'm supposed to have a body that humiliates Fabio. I'm supposed to be devoted to Jesus. Spiritually, there are overlapping dynamics of prayer and Bible reading and living in community with each other and practicing all the spiritual disciplines and being a faithful steward and, and well, you kind of get the picture. What if instead of all this, it really is about one thing? One thing that we could do really well. What if there was just one area in our life 
that if we focused on that, it would trickle down, it would permeate and pervade almost all the other areas of our life. Well, in the Bible, the Apostle Paul, who, as you know, wrote large portions of the New Testament, has simplified his focus down to one thing and doing that one thing very well. He uses an athletic metaphor for the Christian life in many of his, his books. Now, just a kind of a heads up here, guys. He doesn't use a hockey analogy. They didn't have hockey in the first century because they hadn't invented commercials yet. So Paul used a word picture of the kind of race you'd see in the Olympics, a foot race. And it culminates in Philippians 3, 13 and 14, where he says, Ah, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. He uses words like press on and straining to evoke a picture of an athlete in flat-out pursuit of the finishing line, leaning forward, wringing everything out of himself in pursuit of the prize. That, says Paul, is how I'm living my life and how you should be living yours. And that prize? Paul's words are clean, they're crisp, they're simple, they're direct. He cuts through all the barrage of the other activities we can line up in front of ourselves and he brings it down to one thing I do. I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him. And that one thing gets right to the spiritual core, doesn't it? The center of who we are, where everything else emanates from. Because when we grow close to Jesus, we gain the spiritual wisdom and guidance and the power to fulfill all the other roles and commitments and responsibilities that we have as well. For Paul, his goal and his driving motivation was to know Christ more fully. And I'm going to be real bold here. I'm going to simply say that I believe that for every single one of us here, if there was one thing, just one thing that we were going to choose to do well this coming year, it would be to know Jesus more and more. Jennifer, Jennifer and I, my wife and I, have known each other for over 45 years now. I know her, her height. I know her likes. You thought I was going to say, wait, I'm not going there. <laughs> I know her likes. I know her dislikes. I know what she's thinking most of the time. I can complete sentences for her and she for me. But do you know what's still wonderful? Even though I know all that so well over that many years, there are times still when I look into those beautiful eyes and I realize there's continual unfolding discovery awaiting me as we get to know each other more and more. She is as intriguing to me as she was when we first met. You know, I've also had the opportunity uh, over the years to uh, do uh, quite a few premarital counseling sessions with couples. And one of the questions I've loved to ask of those couples as uh, they're preparing for marriage is, do you think you know everything about your spouse-to-be? Guys, <clears throat> You'd be surprised how many men answer, I know everything there is to know. <laughs> and then I say, come and talk to me in a year, and we'll see if you knew everything there is to know about your wife. 
There's always this anticipation of more, of learning more, of getting to know each other more. And that's exactly what Paul is driving at here. He's saying, after all of that, he says, I have this longing to know him. And here's the clue. The clue is in the words that he uses to know him. Because this is not a word that's about intellectual knowledge. It's a very particular Greek word that means to, and if you get this, the whole thing just unpacks before you, to know him by experience. This is an experiential knowledge that Paul's talking about here. This is a longing to know Jesus in my life, to meet him in the very depths of my experience. This word is about a desire for intimacy with Christ. And now I know that that word scares some of us because some of us have been wounded in intimate relationships. But you need to hear this today. Nobody, nobody that's gotten close to Jesus has ever been disappointed, never. I can tell you that with the fullest of confidence because he is a God who cares, he's a God who loves, he is a God who is compassionate, he is someone who is slow to anger and full of mercy and has your best interests in mind. But there's someone else. There's someone else who keeps getting in the way from us committing to knowing Jesus more. There's someone else. Actually, we have an inclination towards knowing better. Ourselves. If you live to know you and to celebrate you, that's going to consume you, and you've got to make a choice. Is life about me or about thee? And Paul makes that choice. But just before he does this, he's listed all the things to celebrate about himself. The guy's got a resume to die for in those days. He says, if anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I got more. Then look at all the blue ribbon stuff he lays out, you know, as, as sort of, here's my resume. I was circumcised on the eighth day exactly the way the time a Jewish boy is supposed to be, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, you know, the elite tribe, a Hebrew of Hebrews in regard to the law, a Pharisee as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. Imagine, faultless. We all have this inside of us, you see. Let's talk about me. It's the one thing I'm an expert on after all. Let's flash my credentials while we're at it because there's something down deep inside our human spirit that wants life to be all about me. My real passion in life is to know me more and my accomplishments and to hope that somehow the world affirms me in all of that. And it complicates things big time because if life is simply about getting to know yourself, then it's frankly not a very real happy trip. Because questions come up. Am I too tall? Am I too short? Am I too large? Am I too thin? Am I rich enough? Am I fam famous enough? Is my career on the fast track enough? If life is all about knowing yourself, isn't there a certain hollowness and emptiness to all of that? I have to tell you that I have at times, I, I have times when I think I know all there is to know about me even. I have all my religious ducks in a row, my behavior's all set up to look good, and then all of a sudden, I shock myself 
when I thought I knew who I was. I have these kind of -of out-of-body experiences looking back on myself going, Pearson, that was you? You said that? You thought that? You honked your horn on your way to church like that? What if he's sitting in the front row? And this is particularly disturbing. The more I know, the more I get to know myself, the more disappointed I am. But isn't it interesting that in spite of all that, we spend collectively billions of dollars trying to get to know ourselves better? It's a dreadfully unbiblical process because if you are really on this pilgrimage of the the one thing, looking for the one thing, then life no longer is about knowing you. Life is about knowing Jesus. On and on through the Bible, right from Adam and Eve in the garden, there is this ongoing theme in Revelation that there is a fundamental problem of human beings who are at best trying vainly to get themselves back into a walk with God by their own efforts, or worst, choosing instead to conform to the world around them and separating themselves from God altogether. On and on it goes through Noah and Abraham and David until finally God decides that the time has come to provide a way for humans who desire it, who will choose it, to walk with him again. And he's the only one that can make that happen. So one day he says, I've got to go down there myself. Now you can imagine the angels are kind of going, yeah, sure you want to do that? You want to go down there? But he does. He comes down in the middle of the night, as we've just celebrated this week, when no one is watching, is born in a manger, literally a hole in the side of a wall, and grows up in a little obscure town, works in a carpentry shop all day, and at the appointed time in his life, he begins to teach us how to grow in our love and obedience towards God. But his crowning work came when he willingly goes to the cross, taking upon himself all the silly, selfish conforming we are doing to disobedience and godlessness, what the Bible calls sin. That all who accept his sacrifice, all who choose to accept his sacrifice, might be forgiven and might be made right in relationship with God and resume the walks in the garden with God that he had instituted with his people in the first place. Jesus came proclaiming the good news of God, and here it is. The time is now. The kingdom of God is here. Once again, you can walk hand in hand with God. So repent and believe this good news that life in the kingdom is now available to ordinary human beings like you and I. Understand that this includes a promise of eternity with God. It includes the forgiveness of our sin. But it's not just a way of dealing with guilt or with the future. It is all of that, but it's not just that. It's about life. It's about life right here, right now. So Jesus constantly looked for ways, for parables and stories to try to communicate to people the good news that this is about a growing relationship here and now, not just for eternity. He said, there's been a change in the circumstance of the human race. It is now possible to live, to gradually, as you are empowered by the Spirit of God, to enter into the kind of life for which you were made. And it starts now. That's the good news that Jesus preached. The forgiveness of God received its ultimate expression on the cross, and it was sealed forever by his resurrection. So you who lie in bed awake at night, filled with worry and anxiety and fear, you can come to live 
in peace. And you who are eaten up by pride, throwing your life away in a race to establish your greatness, you can find the freedom of humility. And you who lead double lives, who live in deception, can find the severe mercy of honesty and truth-telling. Applications for the kingdom are now being accepted from ordinary people who thought they were a million miles away from it and who frankly didn't even know they wanted it. Jesus worked very hard to try to communicate this wonderfully good news. And then as people began to understand it, he would issue an invitation, always an issue of uh, invitation. It has to be the shortest and yet the most compelling invitation ever given to mankind. Follow me. Follow me. I think it's a very interesting thing about us. We take great pleasure in gaining him and being found in him, in the gifts of his grace. We take all the riches of that, and then we go trotting off on our own, thinking that somehow that's all we need, and we don't need to know anything more about him. Why is it that we live to know more about ourselves than to know him? Why is it that our lives don't seem to demonstrate that Jesus is really all that interesting of a person? Maybe it's because we have a faulty perception of just who he is. We obviously, and rightly so, look at the soft side of Jesus, the grace, the mercy, the kindness, the gentleness, all of that is good and wonderful. But if we stop there, we just kind of think of it as, well, he's my savior, but I don't think I really need to know more than that. Well, get a grip. Because if you lived 2,000 years ago and you met Jesus, you would never have had that impression. He was the headlines of the day. The masses followed him wherever he went. They hung on every word that he taught because he taught with authority. When he spoke, it rang true way down deep inside, things they'd never heard before. Many of you have probably felt that inside you when you've heard words from Jesus, either from the Bible or just spoken to you directly. And it's gone way down deep. It's rung true way down deep into your soul, words you've never heard before. And people followed Jesus. He was compelling. He was challenging. Think of this. He had fishermen, James, John, Peter, Andrew. These were tough guys, tough dudes. They were guys who fished all night, lifted heavy nets, threw them out, hauled the fish in, sold them in the market the next day. These were the truck drivers of the day, and I say that in all you know, uh, complimentary uh, fashion. These were good, tough, solid men. And all of a sudden, they came in contact with the real Jesus looked him in the face and heard him say, follow me. And he was so compelling, they dropped their nets, they gave up their careers, and they decided to follow a guy like that. Matthew, Matthew's the shark in the marketplace, the tax collector, despised by everybody, a kind of marketplace guy who says, I don't care what anybody else thinks about me, I'm driven for success, I'm going to make a bundle. And he stuffed all the heavy taxes he could get into his pocket. He sees Jesus. He says, I'm going to leave all that behind to follow a guy like that. Simon the Zealot. Do you know why they called him the Zealot? Because he was a member of the underground. He saw Jesus and he gave up the cause of resistance against Rome and entered the cause of resistance against hell. And he followed him. Women are intrigued by him. 
Women never felt threatened by him. Women felt safe with a man like Jesus. I'm here to tell you that Jesus, that Jesus who really walked the planet is a Jesus that you'd want to know. He's an intriguing, awesome, surprising, out of the bat, out of the box, out of the ordinary Jesus whom people that day came to love and to know. But here's the rub. There was another gift given to us by God alongside his son. He gave us perhaps the single most important and remarkable power in this universe. He gave us the power of choice. He gave us the power of deciding. He gave us the power of decision. It's embedded right in the most recognized and memorized verse that you will see held up on placards behind the NFL games that I know you're all going home to watch later. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Whoever believes, it's a decision. It's a decision. It's not the mechanical power of a galaxy, of a black hole, however great those may be physically. It's the power to choose to love. It's the power to choose to trust. It's the power to choose to obey. For our purposes today, it's the power of human beings to choose our eternal destiny, and we have this power right now. This is God's sacred trust and responsibility given to us You hold this in your hand as I speak. You are an amazing being, and I don't say that casually. You have an unbelievable power entrusted to you by God. And every day, marriages are made or broken by choice. Children get loved or neglected by choice. People's character gets strengthened or shipwrecked by choice. Destinies are carved out, heaven or hell, all because of this power of decision that God has given to human creatures. Friends, nobody understood this better than Jesus. Jesus, our teacher, never simply gives out information for the sake of giving out information. One of the great illusions of the church in our day is the illusion that information alone can produce spiritual maturity. So if we want to create a spiritually mature person, we just have to pump them full of more information. Always, Jesus relentlessly presses people to make a decision based on who he is and his teaching. Always that decision is to be connected to action, often costly action, never merely abstract. Do you want to be healed? Stretch out your hand. Pray and don't give up. Go and sell all you have. Decide, act and then come and be my disciple. I've set for you an example. You also are to wash one another's feet. Peter, come, come to me on the water. Go and sin no more. And above all else, Jesus says, follow me. Follow me. Follow me. Nobody ever went away from an encounter with Jesus going, good talk, good talk. Never, always with people And Jesus, they had to face the question, will you choose? Will you act? Will you decide? Will you obey? Will you submit? Will you bend the knee? Will you open your heart? Will you follow? 
Whether they were kings or beggars, whether they were judges or lepers, it didn't matter one bit. Jesus takes every human being's choice about this with unbelievable seriousness. When human beings encounter Jesus, high or low, weak or powerful, rich or poor, it doesn't matter. When human beings encounter Jesus, it's decision time. And today he comes before us at the start of a new year, and he issues the invitation yet again. Follow me. In Jesus' day, what that meant was really clear. It meant they would physically follow Jesus around, leave everything and just hang out with him and and get a clear picture of what this life that he was offering was all about. By watching him, they would see it all. They would watch him as he would go and be alone. They would watch him as he would pray. They would watch him as he was obedient. They would watch him as he lived in community. They would watch him as he practiced servanthood. They would just watch the things that he did to receive this life from his father. The critical question, of course, in our day is, Jesus is no longer here physically. What does it mean to follow Jesus? If the apostle Paul were here today looking for an athletic metaphor, he might say it means drafting. Those of you who've been involved or watched racing of most kinds, whether at cars, motorbikes, cycling, running, skating, swimming, any kind of race like that, will know what drafting refers to. It refers to kind of an aerodynamic technique where two moving objects are caused to align very closely, as close as possible, one behind the other, thus reducing the drag effect on the follower due to exploiting the lead object slipstream, right? So you just tuck right in behind and you get the benefit of the lead kind of plowing the way in front of you. Even geese understand this concept, right? They fly in a V because of this. They understand that it's healthy as a follower to tuck right in behind the leader. But that, rather than tucking ourselves right in behind Jesus, drafting, following him, <clears throat> excuse me, as closely as we can, for some it seems to have fallen to the thought that, well, Jesus loves me, this I know, That's all I need to know. I'm good. I can coast into the kingdom on his robe tails. Paul would have called this drifting, taking your eyes off the prize. But here's the thing. People don't drift into anything good. People don't drift into anything good. People don't drift into deep and vital prayer. People don't drift into coming to the prayer summit. People don't drift into generosity of spirit. People don't drift into deep community. People don't drift into authentic worship of the most high God. People don't drift into evangelistic passion. Nobody ever drifted into discipleship. Jesus never expected that they would. That's why he always pressed for a decision. I want to try to paint a clear picture in the next several moments about what it means in our day to follow Jesus. What does it mean? What are you signing up for when you do that? Just a kind of a a snapshot picture of it. I suggest to you that to follow Jesus means to arrange your life around the practices, around the relationships, and around the experiences that can help you to receive power from the Spirit of God to live the kingdom kind of life. 
So what might be a few of these practices that we can arrange ourselves around? I'll give you several options here. We're going to do another poll here, show of hands. Like, for instance, I could ask you, you know, like, like David did, is it a good idea, is it a spiritual discipline to study God's word and to live by it? Well, you'd all say, well, yeah, of course, no brainer. So I'll start off slow and we'll get into some other ones, okay? So, so uh, here's, here's, here's the first one. Number one, solitude and prayer. Okay, how many of you believe that solitude and prayer could be a good thing to be doing, a kind of a spiritual discipline kind of thing? Okay, that's, that's not going much out on a limb, is it? I mean, you probably got that one covered. Here's a verse from the Bible that talks about the use of solitude and prayer. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Jesus very often withdraws, withdraws to be alone. It's a very fundamental practice, and he prays. Okay, here's another one. You're going to start getting a little tougher here. Getting a really good night's sleep. Show of hands. How many of you believe that's a good thing? I think those are all the parents with their hands up. (laughs) I think absolutely it can because it's very hard to live and love like Jesus if you're not getting enough sleep. It just is. You get around someone who hasn't got enough sleep and you find that out real fast, right? The Bible talks about this in Psalm 127. In vain. You rise up early and stay up late, toiling for food to eat, for God grants sleep in those he loves. That is one of the things that people who love God do. They trust him enough to get adequate sleep so that they can be loving people. Okay, option number three, eating your favorite food. What do you think? Quick show of hands. I'm not saying it's always a spiritual discipline and you can do it anytime you want to, but... Is it possible that there could be elements of a spiritual discipline here? All right, Deuteronomy 14. This is a practice that God had the people of the Old Testament engage in. It's part of a commandment about celebration to the people of Israel. They were to set aside time to eat and celebrate. And you shall eat there in the presence of the Lord your God, you and your household rejoicing together. Okay, option number four, golfing. Anybody want to vote on that one? Yeah, okay. Here's a verse for that one. A false witness will not go unpunished, and a liar will not escape. (laughs) Simply because you can't play golf without doing those things, right? (laughs) It's all right there in the Bible, folks. I'm not making this up, but if you want to send mail, my name is Ray Yoder, okay? (laughs) To follow Jesus means in our day to grow to be more like him, simply put, to study his life, to look at all the things that he did and the things that his followers have done, and to arrange my life around those practices, those relationships, those experiences that help me to receive power from God because this is not something I can ever do on my own. The Apostle Paul's writing to the church at Galatia, and he's writing about this, this concerns he has for him and this, and this kind of parenthesis he adds to what he's writing, and he says these words, my dear children, for whom I, again, uh, who I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I want to ask you to think for a moment about that little phrase, until Christ is formed in you. Because you've been formed, we all have, by many forces in our lives. Forces that seek to have us choose to conform to their way of thinking. The media, the internet, our culture, our parents, our schools. Forces that want us to conform to a way of thinking that says, we too can be God. We too can satisfy ourselves. We can do whatever we want. We can do whatever feels good. 
We can call our own shots. We can make our own way. We can find our own satisfaction. But Paul adds this. Don't do it. Don't conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Paul is saying that it's possible for human beings to be reformed. It's possible over time for Christ to be formed in you. That is, it's possible that you'll begin to think the way that Jesus would think if he was in your place. It's possible that you'll begin to perceive what Jesus would perceive if he were looking through your eyes. You will begin to feel in your heart what Jesus would feel. You'll begin to do in your body what Jesus would do if he were occupying it. It's possible, really possible, for Christ progressively to be formed in you. And that word transformed is a very important word. It's from a word in the original Greek language, metamorphio. You want to guess what English word we get from metamorphio? Metamorphosis. The word for transformation. It's what happens when a tadpole becomes a frog or larva becomes a pupa and then it turns again into a butterfly. You know how, how great it is? Have you ever thought about this? That in nature around us, God allows us to get a picture of what transformation looks like? In 2 Corinthians 3, Paul says, we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed, metamorphio, into his likeness with ever-increasing glory. We are being transformed into his likeness. Friends, I don't know how else to say this. There is a fundamental expectation in the New Testament that professed followers of Jesus will be progressively growing in Christ-likeness. In other words, Christ being formed in us more and more. To put it another way, we, each of us, should be more Christ-like than we were a year ago today. How are we doing? How are we doing? If you were to ask Matthew, how did you become a tax collector? How did this happen? What do you think you might say? I have a pretty good idea. I think it's the same answer we get when we ask our kids how the writing got to happen on the wall. I don't know. I don't know. Because no kid says to himself, I think I'll become a corrupt and deceitful person when I grow up. I'll choose rejection and humiliation from all the people I love the most. I'll make sure no respectable woman would ever marry me. I'll make sure the only people who will hang out with me will be the kind that drag me down morally and spiritually. In fact, my goal is I'm going to make sure I'll sear my conscience and cut myself off from God and his people. I'm ready to sign up for a life of loneliness and self-loathing. See, nobody chooses that as a kid. Matthew just drifted into it. He just made easy choices when the hard ones would have cost too much. He just got addicted to money. He just got used to cheating until it didn't bother him anymore. He just kind of drifted into it. He just got hardened to the suffering of his own people until it didn't pierce his heart anymore. He just chose the path of self-serving and least resistance so that he never noticed where it was taking him. I dare say he never set out to be a tax collector. It just happened. Do you understand, friends, that this is the, the conforming that the world is trying to get us into? Nobody sits down and plans on disaster. Nobody starts out a life and purposes to have a mediocre existence. 
No couple stands on a platform like this before a minister gets married and plans on the pain of divorce while they're standing there. Nobody nurses a grudge in the hopes of becoming a bitter, resentful person. Nobody clicks on an adult website the first time for the purpose of becoming a hopeless sex addict. Nobody sits down and plans on going to hell. It just happened. Now, I don't know how to say this tenderly or seriously enough. Some of you, perhaps, in this moment are drifting. You're in the drift road mode right now, and that's a serious place to be. You're going to end up with a mountain of regret unless you make a different choice. And if someone were to ask you on that day, how did this happen? How did you get here? I'm afraid you'd say, I don't know. I don't know. Well, that's where Matthew was. But then this man comes along, this carpenter, this house builder, and the thought enters Matthew's mind, a thought that had not crossed his mind in many a year. I don't have to live this way. I don't have to live in darkness. I could choose another path. I could go another way. Why does this thought come to him now after all these years? Because there was something about this man, Jesus, there is something about him that still whispers into the deep places in our foolish hearts. There's another way for you, he says. He comes to tax collectors and those adrift, and he says, you can choose again. You can choose better. You can choose nobler. You can choose wiser. You can choose deeper. You can choose truth. And I'll forgive you. I'll teach you. I'll guide you. I'll go with you. I'll partner with you all the way. I will give you the power to even do it. Who knows what might change? But he will not do this one thing for you. He will not do this one thing for you. He will not choose for you. That you must do on your own. You are the only one who can choose to drift or to draft right in behind Jesus. When you're with people tomorrow, you can decide to love and pray for them. When you're under pressure tomorrow, you can decide to speak truth. You hold this power in your hands. When you're at work tomorrow, you can decide with God's help the attitude that you'll work with. You decide. If you've been carrying dark secrets around, you can decide to come clean like Matthew came clean. If you're having an addiction that's killing you from the inside out, you can decide to get help. You can decide. For Jesus and his kingdom are right here, right now. And there are worlds of possibility open to you as there were for Matthew. As we enter into 2020, let's decide to go into it with 2020 vision. Having eyes, 2020 eyes, to see the good and the holy things that might feed and shape our thoughts in new directions. 2020 eyes of understanding to see how best to spend this precious gift of time that God gives us. 2020 eyes with clarity and focus on how we can make our lives a gift to God in 2020. I'm asking you to choose to come and sit before the feet of Jesus like Matthew did and to learn from him and allow him to say to you perhaps what might be a very real and short talk in whatever area of life 
you need to hear it in this coming year. Follow me. Draft right in behind me. Get as close as you can and you'll find my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Would you stand and sing an affirmation of this?